You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody here this morning, and appreciate Elvin bringing that to us. Uh, I have to admit, this is one of those weeks where we kind of premeditated that. Uh, often we do not. This was one time when we did. The reason why will be evident shortly. <clears throat> Please turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about something completely different. The first 11 verses of John chapter 8 contain an account with which most of us here are probably at least somewhat familiar. And along with that account, most Bible translations include a footnote stating that the oldest and most reliable manuscripts that we have of John's Gospel do not include those verses. I do appreciate the footnote in the New King James Version, which adds that there are more than 900 manuscripts of John's Gospel that do include the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. Now, I accept that these verses may not have been in John's original manuscript, but I also believe that they were preserved as an account of something that actually happened during the ministry of Jesus. So, with that said, let's consider what that was all about. One morning, Jesus was teaching in the temple area when the scribes and Pharisees came to where Jesus was. Now, the scribes, they were the experts in the Old Testament and in the law of Moses. They would be consulted on matters of the law that way. And the Pharisees were members, prominent members of a Jewish sect who believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were the most important scriptures of the Old Testament. The books of Moses, everything else was secondary to that. Now, they had developed an oral tradition that they regarded as equal in authority to God's word. They also relied heavily on ritual and ceremony as proof of their own spiritual sincerity. The scribes and Pharisees were often at odds with Jesus, most of them doubting Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God, and resenting him for the attention that he was getting from the people. On this particular day, they brought a woman to Jesus, and they claimed that she had been caught in the very act of adultery. And no one questions this statement, not even Jesus, nor the woman. So we accept that to be the truth. Here was a woman caught in the act of adultery. They said to Jesus, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? John goes on to say that they were testing Jesus, wanting to find some grounds to accuse him. You read that, you might want to accuse him of what? Well, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, said that those who commit adultery should be put to death. Didn't say stone, but there are other passages that might have uh, been interpreted that way, and, and that would all be appropriate. So, fine, case closed, right? There's a problem with that. And the problem, as John 18, 31 points out, was that the Romans didn't allow the Jews at this point in history to carry out capital punishment. 
to the scribes and Pharisees, then it must have seemed as though Jesus could not answer their question correctly. If Jesus said, put the woman to death, upholding the law of Moses, well then the scribes and Pharisees could go to the Romans and accuse Jesus of teaching rebellion against Roman authority. If, on the other hand, Jesus said that the woman should receive some lesser punishment or no punishment at all, then they could speak to the Jewish people, accusing Jesus of not upholding the law of Moses, and that would discredit him as a teacher and it would turn the people against him. Either way, the scribes and Pharisees would regain their popularity and influence among the Jewish people. Now, as most of us know, Jesus said something in response that the scribes and Pharisees did not expect. He said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. As the scribes and Pharisees absorbed what Jesus had said, they realized that they had failed to trap him, and they began to leave one by one. The statement made here by Jesus is considered by many to be the point of the account telling us that we should consider our own sin before pointing our finger at someone else. We might find a parallel passage in Matthew 7, verse 1, where it says, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. Often these things are presented together. And this view encourages us to ask ourselves the question, Who are we more like in this story? Are we more like the scribes and Pharisees, or are we more like Jesus? Now, I don't think this is an inappropriate application of the passage, but I'd like us to think about it from a slightly different direction. What was Jesus really saying to the scribes and Pharisees that day? Couldn't we interpret Jesus as saying that just because the scribes and Pharisees hadn't been caught in the act, that that didn't somehow make them innocent? They were guilty just like the adulterous woman was guilty. And, by extension, all of us are guilty. The woman was guilty. The scribes were guilty. The Pharisees were guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And we might ask the question then, but with a different perspective, who are we most like in this story? We are most like the woman. Guilty, guilty. Guilty, guilty. Some believe that it wasn't just the scribes and Pharisees who left at that point. They believe that the only people who remained after Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. They they, they believe that the only people left were Jesus and the woman. Maybe so, because guilt can do that. But that's not the end of the story, is it? After the scribes and Pharisees left, Jesus turned to the woman and said, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? The woman's reply was simple. No one, Lord. You've got to stop there for a second and consider what might have been going through this woman's mind. There's no way to know, but perhaps she had heard about Jesus before. Maybe she had heard that the people were saying things like, No one has ever taught like this man has. Maybe she'd heard the rumors going around that Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah. It's possible she had even heard about some of the miracles, or maybe about the time that this man standing before her had fed more than 5,000 people in Galilee with only five small loaves of bread and two fish. Sure, the scribes and Pharisees had gone, but might she not be in even bigger trouble now if this man is actually the Son of God? 
The next words Jesus spoke almost certainly came as a shock to the woman. I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Jesus didn't point his finger at her and say, You're a dirty, rotten sinner! You better be glad I put those scribes and Pharisees in their place because they were right. Moses' law says that you should be put to death. Jesus could have said all those things. And he was uniquely qualified to do so. Of all the people there that day, he was the only one who, by his own standard, had the right to cast the first stone at the woman because he was the only one there without sin. But to this woman, who certainly deserved condemnation under Moses' law, Jesus offered forgiveness, and said, I do not condemn you either. As we have studied the first seven chapters of Romans, among all the other things that Paul has taught, one thing is abundantly clear. Under God's law, every last one of us deserves condemnation. Romans 3.23 stated it like this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At the end of chapter 7, after discussing the continuing struggle with sin that he had as a Christian, Paul wrote, Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? Romans chapter 8 is the answer to that question. And this morning we will look at the first 13 verses. Today's message is called, No Condemnation. We'll start in Romans 8, verse 1. And now you know why Elvin sang that song that he sang. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul has said that God's law is good, and that God's law is sufficient for our salvation, but only if we obey it perfectly. And we don't. None of us. So, under God's law, we all stand condemned In our sin. As we just read in verse 3, the law could not bring about our salvation because of our weakness. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because we are weak. But what the law could not do, God did. What, What would the law do at this point? Once we sinned, the law could only support our condemnation. But God has removed our condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, you can go back to chapter 6. The first 11 verses of Romans 6 describe those who are in Christ, who through baptism have been united with him in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. And this promise of no condemnation is for all who are in Christ. The word no here is emphatic. It means none at all of any kind. That's great. That's great news, because if you are in Christ, there isn't just a little condemnation, or almost none, or barely any. No, there is no condemnation whatsoever. Every sin has been forgiven. No penalty applies. The law condemns, but God 
has removed all condemnation for those who are in Christ. And verse 2 describes two laws, and we're very familiar with the second one, the law of sin and of death. Paul has shown very well how all of us came to be under the penalty and power of sin and death, having been conceived in an environment which surrounded us with sin in all its forms. We became accustomed to sin and aligned to sin so that as soon as we were aware of sin and our moral accountability to God for it, we still chose to sin. And that brought about our spiritual death. And while we were outside of Christ, the law of sin and death is the system under which we lived and under which we would someday die for eternity. But those who are in Christ live under a new system, the law of the spirit of life. When we are baptized into Christ and we receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the controlling power of sin is replaced by the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. And the consequence of sin, which is death, is replaced by that which the Holy Spirit provides, which is life. We read verse 4 and we see that the requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us. We might say, well, what is that? What is the requirement of the law that God has made possible to be fulfilled in us? Is it the law's requirement for perfect obedience in order to be in a right relationship with God? Or is it the law's requirement for punishment for all those who break God's law in any way at any time, even if only once? And I think the answer is yes. We do not obey the law perfectly, but we are justified through faith in Christ so that God declares us to be in a right relationship with him anyway. And so the requirement of the law for perfect obedience, though we did not fulfill that perfect obedience, the requirement has been fulfilled in Christ, and we connect to that through faith in Christ. In our sin, then, we also deserve the punishment of eternal torment. But Jesus took our place on the cross, receiving our punishment on himself instead. And we were talking about it in Sunday school this morning. Uh, we're in Hebrews and talking about Jesus as our high priest. But that on the cross, to take the eternal torment of all mankind that all men deserve upon himself and compress that into the space of a few hours, I don't think we begin to understand what Jesus endured on the cross that day. But because he did that, because of what Jesus has done, the requirement that our sin be punished was satisfied but it was satisfied by Jesus instead of by us. And so now God is able to look at those who are in Christ and say, you are in a right standing as far as the law is concerned. No penalty applies to you anymore. And as always, for the Christian, Jesus is the key. The key he's the key for the non-Christian too. They just haven't necessarily recognized that yet. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not some substitute that we can put in place of him that says, well, we, we can find some other way to find no condemnation. No, you can't. You blew it on your own, so there's, no, there's condemnation when you're talking about your own achievement. And there's no other person who has ever lived, who's living now or whoever will live, who can take your place like Jesus did. Jesus is the key. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
Christ did what the law could not do. How? By sending his son, Jesus. Though he came as a human being, Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he did so without sinning. Jesus became the propitiation for our sin. That is, he became the sacrifice that turned God's wrath away from us and to himself instead. How is it that we can escape the condemnation we so richly deserve? How is it that the woman who was caught in the act of adultery escaped the condemnation that she so richly deserved? The answer is the same. Jesus. Let's go to verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The life of no condemnation that we have in Jesus is completely different than the life of condemnation we had when we were still in our sin. In verses 5 through 9 of Romans 8, Paul contrasts these two ways of life, calling the life of no condemnation life according to the Spirit, and calling the life of condemnation life according to the flesh. He also describes those living the life of no condemnation as having their minds set on the things of the Spirit, while those who live the life of condemnation have their minds set on the things of the flesh. This is one of those, there are two kinds of people in the world moments. Either you are living a life of condemnation with your mind set on fleshly, sinful things, or you are living, living a life of no condemnation with your mind set on the things of which the Holy Spirit approves and which he promotes. The result of having a mind set on the things of the flesh, death in all its forms. Focusing your mind on sinful things, having the outlook that whatever serves yourself in any fashion is the most desirable thing, and living the logical outcome of that kind of mindset produces sin, which results in death and eternal separation from God. But the result of having a mind set on the things of the Holy Spirit is life and peace. Focusing your mind on the things that the Holy Spirit approves of and promotes. Having the outlook that whatever serves God in any fashion is the most desirable thing. And living the logical outcome of that kind of mindset is only possible if Jesus is your Lord and Savior and if the Holy Spirit is living in you. The result of his presence in your life is eternal life and peace with God. The mind that is set on the things of the flesh is hostile to God. It's opposed to his desires. It is rebellious against his authority. A person having such a mind finds that it is impossible to please God if he or she even wanted to do so. One reason this is so is because a person whose mind is opposed to God's desires will not have faith in God and will not seek a right relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says that without faith, 
It is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards all those who seek him. One commentator noted that many will believe that will not believe that God exists. Many more may believe in the existence of God, but they will not believe that he rewards those who seek him, and so they do not. This is the mind set on the flesh. On the other hand, the mind set on the things of the spirit is in agreement with God. It's reconciled with God. Such a person willingly submits to God's authority and is able to please God because he relates to God on the basis of his faith both in God and in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 gives us yet another two kinds of people in the world observation. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who have the Holy Spirit living in them and those who don't. This is equivalent to saying that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who belong to Christ and those who don't. When we are united with Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us, allowing us to have minds, set on the things of the Spirit, and identifying us as those who belong to Jesus Christ. That's important. Because when Jesus returns at the second coming, he will take all those who belong to him with him into eternal life, while those who don't belong to him will be abandoned to eternal punishment. Let's go on to verse 10. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, underline that word brethren, if you're an underliner, underline that one. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We've heard several ways to describe those who live the life of no condemnation. Paul refers to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who are under the law of the Spirit of life, those in whom the requirement of the law has been fulfilled, those who walk according to the Spirit, those whose minds are set on the things of the Spirit, those who are in the Spirit, and those who have the Spirit of Christ. I may have missed some. You can go back and read that passage again. There's a lot of things here, all referring to the same status. Those who live this life of no condemnation. Now in verse 10, Paul gives us yet another way referring to those who have Christ in them. Verses 10 through 13 tell us three things about those who have Christ in them. And the first is that though our physical bodies are dead because of our sin, we talked about it last week, our spirits are alive because of righteousness. This dual existence is one that every Christian has and one with which every Christian struggles. Sin still inhabits our physical bodies, and it leads us to sin sometimes, even though we hate those sinful acts. Here in Romans 8.10, the focus is on being spiritually alive. This is in contrast to those who do not have Christ in them and who are not in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ are still spiritually dead. They're separated from God. They face eternal condemnation. 
those who are in Christ, and in whom Christ dwells, are spiritually alive, united with God, and facing eternal life. This condition is based on Christ's righteousness credited to our account on the basis of our faith in him. Along with being spiritually alive, having Christ in us, which also means that the Holy Spirit is living in us, not exactly the same thing, but those two things happen at the same time, gives us, having Christ in us, gives us the promise of our physical resurrection when Christ returns. It is a fact that all who have died will rise from the dead when Christ returns, righteous and wicked alike. All will rise from the dead when Christ returns. But only those who have Christ and the Holy Spirit in them will be transformed into a glorious state fit for eternity in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, say this about the Christian's resurrected body. Paul writes there, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That's the body we know now. It is raised an imperishable body the body we one day will have because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Verses 52 and 53 of 1 Corinthians 15 add this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal, and if any of you are not aware of your own mortality, you haven't been paying attention. Sometimes we we blame it on the old people. The old people, they're they're the ones aware of their mortality because they're the only ones that have to worry about it. It's not just the old people that have to worry about it, I'll tell you that. Okay, You young guys, you young ladies... You have to know that too. This, this mortal must put on immortality. In Christ, we are made spiritually alive immediately, and then our bodies are transformed with new physical life in a way that I don't really fully comprehend when Christ returns. And then back in Romans 8, in verses 12 and 13. Paul draws a conclusion for how a Christian must live this life of no condemnation. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and in view of his resurrection from the dead, God offers you complete pardon from the penalty you have earned because of your sin. You can accept this pardon through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as you repent of your sin and confess your faith to others, being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and receiving the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, at that point, you are in Christ and the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you. And isn't that great news? And so now, wonderful, you can go and do whatever you want, right? Mm, That's not what he says here. Remember what Jesus told the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery after he said, I do not condemn you either. It's easy to focus on that part. I like that part too. That's my favorite part. The next part, not so much. After he told her, I do not condemn you either, he also told the woman, from now on, sin no more. 
having pardoned the woman, and I believe it was for every sin she had ever committed. You know, when, when the, Dr. Jones was sharing with us in chapel this week about the men who, who had the friend who was paralyzed and they let him down through the roof. That was this week, wasn't it? Am I making that up? <laughs> I lose track of time, sorry. And they let him down and they were expecting Jesus to heal him because you know, he couldn't walk and the, the doorway was blocked and the house was full and so they let him down through the roof and, and you know, whatever. Jesus looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Not just one sin, not just that thing you did yesterday, not just a, a few things, but your sins, the body of sin, all of your sin was taken care of right there by Jesus. And I think he did the same thing with the woman here who had been caught in the act of adultery. Not just this one act. And you know that wasn't her only sin any more than it would have been yours or mine. But having pardoned the woman for every sin she'd ever committed, Jesus informed her of her obligation, sin no more. Paul tells us that our forgiveness now and our spiritual life now also comes with an obligation, a responsibility, a duty. And we're not obligated to fulfill the desires of our sinful flesh. We've been there, done that, gotten the death warrant. In fact, Paul says that if we continue, even as Christians, if we continue to devote ourselves to sinful living after we become Christians, we will eventually choose to return to life without Christ. And we will die spiritually all over again. We don't have to. Nobody's going to force us. It won't be an accident. It'll be something that we choose. But we can, if we choose to continue to devote ourselves to sinful living. Instead... Paul, Paul implies it here. It's, it's obvious in what he says that this is the content of, of what he doesn't say. Instead, we are under obligation to the Holy Spirit. We're under obligation to the Holy Spirit to use his power and his presence in our lives to put to death the deeds of the body, even though sin still dwells in our physical bodies. And we know what that struggle's like. He says, but you've got the Holy Spirit now. And you need to use the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. When we are in Christ, sin is no longer our master, and we must choose not to let sin master us again. The opening words of Romans 8 serve as a great conclusion to this message as well. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you, again, if you're an underliner, underline the word no. No condemnation. None at all. In Christ, God has given us something we couldn't obtain through the law. He set us free from the law of sin and death, and He's allowed us to live under the law of the Spirit of life. Whatever the law required of us, is counted as being fulfilled because of what Jesus has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Instead of hostility toward God and eternal spiritual death, we now have peace with God and eternal spiritual life because the Holy Spirit lives in us if we are in Christ. We are reconciled to God. And because our minds are set on the things of the Spirit, we have the ability to please God both in faith and in action. Now we belong to Christ, and we await his return. 
the time when he will take those who belong, with, belong to him to be with him forever. As Christians, Christ also lives in us, and he makes us spiritually alive immediately. We have his promise that we will someday, at his return, be physically resurrected and transformed, our mortal bodies becoming immortal, all shame and disgrace wiped away in glory. Now that we have this new life of no condemnation, we also understand that we have an obligation to the Holy Spirit living in us to use his presence and power to overcome our sinful desires because no condemnation doesn't mean no responsibility. If you've never given control of your life to Jesus Christ, you still stand before him condemned. And that's a bad place to be. He is absolutely willing to take away your condemnation, but you have to accept it on his terms. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and in view of his resurrection from the dead, God offers you a complete pardon from the penalty you have earned because of your sin. Complete. It's what he offers to you now. You can accept this pardon through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you think this sounds familiar, yes, I said this before, but I thought it was important to repeat it now. You can accept this pardon through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as you repent of your sin, as you confess your faith to others, being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. At that point, you are in Christ, and the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you. When you are in Christ, there really is no condemnation for you and no penalty waiting for you in the future, but you must be in Christ in order for no condemnation to apply. Are you ready to receive Christ's offer of complete forgiveness today? And if you are, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.